All right, let's do this. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So, uh, Paul spends a bunch of time, the last part of chapter 1 and the first four verses of chapter 2, talking about why he, didn't, why he decided not to go back to Corinth, which the Corinthians apparently got really upset about. But now he finally moves on to something else. And chapter 2 is really short, so we're going to get into chapter 3 tonight as well. But starting in verse 5 to 11, here's what... Paul writes, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, he has caused this pain to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. That's an important statement. For we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. We're not ignorant of his schemes. If you'll recall... Uh, several weeks ago during um, 1 Corinthians. First of all, what Paul's talking about here is, uh, we believe, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he writes to the church in Corinth and says, uh, it is reported that there's a sin going on in your community that not even the pagans would, uh, would, would embrace or accept. And that's that you have a son sleeping with his father's wife and the, way Paul, the, the reason Paul says it that way is because this is actually his stepmother, not his mother. So he's sleeping, his, his mother's dead, his father remarries, now he's sleeping with his father's wife or his stepmother. And Paul's saying, you're letting this go and actually celebrating it, you should be confronting him and making him stop, making him see his sin. So that's what Paul is addressing now. Apparently they got the letter uh, from, from Paul saying you need to do something about this and so they did but now they're going overboard on the punishment aspect and he's saying look if he's repented now you have to forgive him would you quit punishing him anyway that's sort of the context of it but also uh, if you remember several weeks ago during 1 Corinthians I talked about how in uh, the book Dopamine Nation who, I think somebody in here was reading or do you have it on your list Ira? okay Dopamine Nation, where um, uh, the, the author of Dopamine Nation, a, a medical doctor named Anna Lemke, who also happens to be a psychiatrist. Uh, she's not a Christian, but in this book, Dopamine Nation, she actually writes about how um, one of the problems with our culture right now is we're trying to eliminate shame altogether from our culture. So you can do whatever you want, and you should never feel shame about it. And she said, that's not helpful, that's destructive. She says, that, but then she says, now listen, we understand there is destructive shame. There is such a thing as destructive shame. But then she goes on to talk about there is something, though, called pro-social shame. Pro-social shame is an acknowledgement that what you're doing is shameful. But you're never going to feel like um, if you, if you 
confess that what you're doing is wrong and you want to and you want to stop it and you want to repair it um, there, there is never this sense that you're going to be expelled from the community or you're going to be shunned or you're going to be shamed in that way she says so pro-social pro shame is actually essential for society to operate well you have to have some measure of shame it's just that it's got to be this what she calls pro-social shame and it's interesting because in other areas of social science, they have other things that are called pro-social. Like, I don't know if you know this, but there are four levels of lying, okay? So the, 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 the level of lying that does the least amount of damage is called pro-social lying or pro-social deception. That's when, that's when uh, parents show you their newborn and they say, isn't she just beautiful? And you're looking at the newborn, and the newborn is not beautiful. But you say, yes, yes, she's beautiful. Okay, that's pro-social deception. Okay, it's, it's to achieve some, some social good. Anyway, pro-social shame, Lemke says, uh, there has to be shame, but there has to be this, this understanding that you're not just going to shun people or kick them out of the community. You're going to restore them, but they have to also correct their behavior and recognize their behavior is wrong. This is the kind of shame that Paul exercises. And this is the kind of shame that Paul writes about in his letters. He uses the word shame. He says, it is to your shame that you are doing this. But he's also at the same time saying, you need to understand you're in Christ also. You are a Christian. You're a part of the kingdom. You're a part of the community. But you need to stop doing this. So there is this level of shame that Paul is communicating, but he's also communicating in a way that would be described today as pro-social shame. I'm, I'm always fascinated at all the stuff that Paul writes about that we now in psychology and the discipline of communication and in sociology, we just, we just accept as, as research fact now. But of course, he had no benefit of any of the social sciences when he was writing it in the first century. All he had, all he had, all he had was the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the source of all truth. So, of course, the Holy Spirit knows this stuff. Just like when Paul writes in, um, uh, in, in Romans 12, you know, don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. So I took a, 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 a graduate class at ASU on conflict and conflict resolution with a guy named, the professor was Dan Canary. He's one of my heroes. He's a... He's a He's a rock star in the communication discipline, written all kinds of books. In our cohort, there were 15 students, the master's cohort, and there was one other Christian. His name was Alan Mickelson, and we became good friends even though we were different in age by almost 20 years. Um, but uh, Alan now is a PhD in communication, and he teaches at Whitworth uh, University in Spokane, and he teaches communication uh, there. And we've kind of stayed in touch over the years. Anyway, uh, we, we read this uh, one research article. I mean, these researchers dug in for months and months and months and studied, you know, like conflict resolution and stuff. And here was one in the, in the um, conclusion section of the research paper. Here was one of the conclusions they came to. You, you can never really overcome evil with evil. You, you, you can, however, overcome evil with good. And there was this self-congratulatory tone of the scholars, right? Look what we, you know, discovered. And Alan and I both separately had written Romans chapter 12 in, in the margin of this research project. And we look, we're in class and we look and we go, yeah, 
you know, gee, Paul knew this 2,000 years ago, but who would know that, you know? All you got to do is read the Bible. So anyway, so this paragraph, 5 through 11, there's three things that are sort of general things that are happening here that I want to mention. One is, uh, first of all, no matter what you think, your sin is going to hurt others. Uh, We fervently believe, and I'm in this camp too, we fervently believe that if our sin doesn't involve anyone else, it's no big deal and it's not going to hurt anybody. But that's just not true. We fail to remember that sin has a way of harming others even when we think it's not going to harm anybody else. Um, And we also have this tendency to forget that the most important relationship, our sin hurts, even if it doesn't involve anybody else, is our relationship with God. Hurts that relationship as well. Apparently, we don't think that relationship is that important, though, (laughs) because we're only concerned about whether or not we potentially could hurt others or get caught by others. That's what we're worried about. So if we assume, and we should, that the person Paul is talking about is the guy from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the argument from them would be, well, they're consenting adults. They're not hurting anybody. Have you ever heard the consenting adults argument in our culture? Okay, the consenting adults argument has been used to, um, to okay uh, uh, just a variety of, of various activities. Which, by the way, if you know anything about how the culture is moving, and if you've ever heard of an organization called NAMBLA, you know that it's no longer consenting adults, it's just consenting human beings. Okay? So we have minor attracted people now. We don't call them pedophiles anymore. We call them, we call them minor attracted people because they're trying to legitimize the, the idea of having sex with a consenting eight-year-old. Okay, do you know what NAM, anybody, have you heard of NAMBLA? I know, I know uh, Ira has, you, you have too, James. So NAMBLA stands for National Association of Man-Boy Love. Okay, and it's a group of men who say it's legitimate that I am attracted to uh, young men, uh, young boys, and that I can have sex with them. Okay, right, I'm, I'm way off. I'm way off script here, but let me just point something out here, okay? I'm going to workshop this a little bit with y'all, okay? And, it, oh, by the way, it's going to be on the, I may get canceled if this thing goes viral, but um, anyway. So think about the abortion issue. So 30 years ago, it was, look, look, it, it, we, we want, Bill Clinton said this, we want abortions to be um, safe but rare. And the idea was that, you know, it's just, it's just up to 16 weeks. That's it. That's all we want is to be able to do abortion up to 16 weeks. Now, I'm sorry, I'm a slippery slope guy. I know, I know where that's going, okay? So you know what the standard is today? Anybody know what the standard is today? The common standard today is up to birth. You should be allowed to have an abortion up to birth, and that's why we have uh, uh, legal in many states something called partial birth abortion where you actually birth the baby, but you're killing the baby as you birth the baby, nine months, okay? Now there's um, a guy at Princeton, I can't remember his name right now, but he's become famous lately by arguing that um, a child does not have agency until they are two years old. So really, parents should be allowed to kill their children up to two years old now. This is how far the abortion argument is coming now. And this is gaining traction, that you can kill children up to two years old. I I have a grandson who's a year and a half right now. 
I just, I can't believe that people are legitimately talking about this, but they are, okay? Now, hold that in abeyance. So, let's say we're going to have abortion and infanticide up to two years old legalized. Let's just say that gets legalized someday, okay? At the same time, what we have is we have the trans community claiming that when a child is four years old, they have the agency and the wisdom, four years old, they have the agency and the wisdom to declare that they are in the wrong body and, and they, can, uh, they can start uh, therapy to change their gender from a boy to a girl or from a girl to a boy at four. Here's my question, okay? And I can't get an answer from any, James knows exactly where I'm going. I can't get an answer from anybody, okay? My question is, what happens to a child between the ages of two and four that they had no agency at two, but now at four, they have the agency and the wisdom to tell parents, teachers, and the medical community what they can do with their bodies? That's how insane our culture is today. And I don't get, I, and I, I will tell you, the answers are, number one, well, it's just a known known, so I could go off and talk about What's a known known? A known known is the new absolute truth, but it's been uh, managed by the last 40 years of postmodernism de de deconstruction, reconstructing itself into new postmodern theories where we've replaced absolute truth with things called known knowns and you're not allowed to argue against known knowns. It's a known known that a four-year-old has agency and wisdom to be able to declare that they're in the wrong body. Okay, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll, I'll let you in on a little, little secret. When I was five, my sisters dressed me up in ballerina outfits with the, the shoes and everything and took pictures of me and I had a ball. It was fun. It was so fun. Okay, today if that happens, well, he's obviously trapped in, a, in the wrong body. Just because I dressed up in ballerina outfits when I, I probably shouldn't be admitting. Anyway, but just because I dressed up in ballerina outfits when I was five didn't mean that I wasn't going to be a man the rest of my life. But this is how freaked out we've become. Okay, so how was that for a rant? That was a pretty good rant, right? Good. All right, so if you want to listen to it again. All right, so consenting adults, but also now consenting minors. We have that in our culture today. Uh, the fact that the church in Corinth allowed this to continue, even though it was thought in, uh, in some circles to be okay, it just did a lot of damage to the church. And that's what Paul is trying to point out in 1 Corinthians 5. So our sin does hurt others. Here's the second thing that's happening. In Christ, we forgive. If the sinner is repentant and understands that he or she, uh, what he or she was doing is wrong and desires not to do it again, the faith community is a forgiving and eventually, depending on the circumstances, a restorative community. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, always keep in mind how much you are forgiven, how much I am forgiven by Jesus when it comes to grace, judgment, discipline, and forgiveness of, as, uh, of another. Uh, it's throughout the New Testament. We forgive just as in Christ God has forgiven us. Of course, our problem, my problem is that, especially when I'm in traffic, my problem is that I really love judgment for others and grace for me, especially on the 51. Okay? The standard Jesus sets for forgiveness is one that we can never circumvent in forgiving others. By the way, speaking of driving on the 51, um, I, th this has nothing to do with anything either, but I, I just have to tell you this story. Uh, my dream car for decades has been a Dodge Challenger. Do you all know what a Dodge? I, I just, oh my goodness. It, I see a Dodge Challenger and my heart just beats faster. I've always wanted a Dodge Challenger. Now, 
two prohibitive things about Dodge Challengers. One is, it's not a good look for a pastor. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's number one. Okay. Um, Jackie used to have a Mustang GT with, that was lime green with this beautiful white racing stripe on it. And one time I took it to a pastor's meeting because my car was in the shop and Jackie didn't need her car. Oh my goodness, the crap that I got from the other pastors for driving that guy. Anyway, so it's not a good look for a pastor, but second of all, uh, cost prohibitive. They're, they're really expensive cars. Um, so uh, anyway, the staff this week got together as a surprise for me. Uh, uh, they rented me a Dodge Challenger for two days. And I just had to give the keys back, well, the fob. I just had to give the fob back to Tyler James so he could take it back. But so for the last two days, I've been driving around Phoenix in this red Challenger. <laughs> and it's not the one with the little six-cylinder engine. It had the V8. You know, this thing was fast. Let me, t well, it was within the confines of the speed limit. Anyway, it was, a, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, I texted Tyler and I said, are you sure I can't just keep it for another three years. <laughs> so, anyway. so here's the third thing going on in this paragraph. Satan will use our lack of forgiveness to have his way with those who are not forgiven. Part of Satan's strategy, Paul talks about this in verse 11, part of Satan's strategy always, whether it's true or not, is to make feel, people feel uh, unfairly judged by the church. Whether it's true or not, Satan will make people feel unfairly judged by the church. In this case, if the sinner is repentant, and apparently he is, because Paul's arguing that you've got to forgive him, and if the church doesn't forgive him, the church has participated in losing him to Satan. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. Okay? So, uh, some other things that we learn from all of this when we combine it with 1 Corinthians 5 is, number one, the church shouldn't be shy about uh, confronting grievous sin or grievous false teaching. We can argue about biblical interpretation and application and, and teaching, but if it's grievous and obviously wrong, then, then we've got some issues. Okay? We learned from David, for instance, in his episode with Amnon just this last Sunday, Amnon, Tamar, and, and Absalom, that to let grievous sin go uh, just causes b bigger problems further down the road. It just does. Um, and if, if you have a situation where there's a ministry leader or somebody involved in, in ministry at the church, you might, you might need to give them a little bit of time off. Even if they repent, you might give them a little bit of time off. Um, but if, in, if unrepentant, then um, Jesus says, look, in Matthew 18, he says, if, if the sinner is unrepentant, um, you, you have to treat him like you would a tax collector. In other words, you have to... You have to take him out of the community and say you, you can't be a part of the community. And there's two reasons Jesus says that. Number one, it's to protect the community, first of all, from the sin. And number two, um, the idea is that if you're out of the Christian community, you're going to miss it and it's going to be an incentive for you to finally understand that you need to confess and repent your sin in order to be able to uh, be restored to the community. Uh, that's a high view of Christian community, and it should be that way. And I would hope it would be that way. Of course, uh, some people just, if you can imagine people more cynical than I am, they argue that, um, they argue that today what people do is they just, they just go down the street to a different church, and nobody knows the difference, you know. So, 
Um, the church should be a place of grace and forgiveness for those who acknowledge their sin. And by the way, if you're, if you're getting the idea that um, the, only way, the only time or way we should forgive is if somebody asks for forgiveness, that's also not true. I mean, we can forgive people who haven't asked for forgiveness. It just doesn't mean that we've restored them. There's a difference between forgiving, restoring, and reconciling. Those are all uh, different levels of, of forgiveness. You can forgive somebody who hasn't, and we should forgive people who haven't asked for forgiveness, but we also have the wisdom not to restore them if they haven't uh, asked for forgiveness, if they haven't confessed their sin and uh, repented. So uh, the church should not avoid, condone, or rationalize sin because Satan, Satan here, Satan will use both a lack of repentance of sin and a lack of forgiveness to turn people away from God. That's part of his schemata or schemes. It's part of his plans. So then the last paragraph, verses 12, well, actually in the ESV it's two paragraphs, but I'll read 12 through 17. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumph, triumphal procession. And through us, this is, this is one of my favorite paragraphs in the New Testament, by the way. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, Jesus, everywhere. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and also to those among those who are perishing. To one, it is a fragrance from death to death and to the other, it is a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are, for we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So, Paul left Ephesus because of the riots due to his preaching the gospel. We talked a little bit about that last week. And he left Ephesus hoping to meet up with Titus in Troas. Troas is a city that's a little bit north of Ephesus. And he was also hoping that Titus would bring word to him of, of how the Corinthians had been receiving his correspondence. In other words, will the Corinthians be teachable? But when Paul got to Troas, Titus wasn't there yet. So he began preaching in the city and with great success. He was preaching the gospel in the city of Troas. And that a church was started there and that people came to Jesus, led Paul to believe and proclaim that God had opened this door for him to preach and evangelize and minister by having his plans altered because Titus had not made it there yet. So for a moment in, Titus, in, in Troas, he's thinking, God did this specifically so that I'd have to preach here and plant a church here. So the question that, that comes to my mind in, in, in this issue is, what about us? Um, how often do we get frustrated? How often do I get frustrated, uh, sometimes with God, when our plans don't work out, when our scripts for how we think our day or our week or our month or our lives should work out, they don't go to the way, the way that we had planned them out. But then, in fact, we find out later that maybe God has a better plan. We just don't think so in the moment. Okay? 
But then verse 13, in the midst of these ministerial victories, Paul's spirit was unsettled because he was so concerned about the Corinthians' reaction to his letters and instructions. He wanted to see Titus. He wanted to get with Titus. And so he, he leaves because of this unsettled spirit, even though he's having success in Troas, he leaves there and goes on to Macedonia uh, ostensibly to look for Titus as Titus would have to pass uh, through there to eventually get to where he was going. And then verses four, 14 through 16, uh, this whole idea of fragrances and aromas. Okay, So a little bit of history here. First century, first century parades and processionals always had fragrances. They always had different aromas. Okay? Mostly by the vendors that were involved in the processions or the, or the parades. They, vendors would just... It, it was a way of engaging the senses and getting attention by having these fragrances and these aromas. Also... Whenever there was a military victory and the conquering general would come back or the, or the military would come back, the processional or parade of a returning victorious emperor or general and the military uh, would have a fragrance or an aroma of victory as well. They would burn incense. And there would also just be this attitude that metaphorically was just sort of this attitude of superiority and, and, and victory. Okay. So, but they like to do. They like to burn incense as they would come on these processionals. Again, engaging more senses than just sight and sound. Uh, and I'll give you some. How many? How many of you struggle, uh, like, to go by a bakery and not go in? I do. That smell, and they do it on purpose. I'm sure of it. Okay, so I, I also like to run on the canal banks, and if I run. If I go up to the canal, I usually get on the canal bank. Um, my entry point is by the Greek Orthodox Church at 20th Street in Maryland. Y'all know where that is? And Granada Park is right there. So I either go left or right. So I either run over into Sunny Slope or I run over into uh, Biltmore and Arcadia. Well, if I go right and I'm running um, through the Biltmore, you know, there's the Adobe Grill there where the, um, uh, it's like where the, club the golf clubhouse is. Okay. So I'm running by there in the morning when they're cooking their bacon. It's awful. It's torture for me, you know. <laughs> it just drives me crazy. And then I've used this as an example many, many times. Uh, you know, you walk into Macy's, and no matter what floor you're on, you can smell all the perfume from, from the cosmetics uh, area. You know, th th these aromas are just, they permeate. They're everywhere. But there's also the aroma of death, Right? So um, I know, again, people, because so much of Arcadia used to be uh, citrus uh, groves, and so they had lots of uh, problems with rats, and so people have roof rats sometimes in Arcadia. And then if you get a roof rat that gets trapped in the roof and then dies up there, uh, it kind of smells. Right? Have you ever smelled a dead rat? I have. Um, I was working downtown when I was in high school in a four-story building um, and uh, we just all started noticing that uh, there was this terrible odor coming from the area where the elevator was. And we're opening the elevator doors and looking in, looking in the, and look, you know, we're just, it's the elevator though, the elevator stinks. And so we called the elevator repairman. 
your elevator stinks. We don't know why, but it stinks really bad. And so he comes out and he actually looks on top of the elevator and there was a big, like, like this big dead rat on top of the elevator. <laughs> okay, so that was bad. And then of course, um, if, if, you're, um, if you're a marginal Christian like Jackie and me, and you've watched the, the, the Jeffrey Dahmer show on, on Netflix. Um, <laughs> you know that one of the reasons that, that Dahmer got caught was because he couldn't cover up the smell of, of him killing all these people. You know, the odor of all of that. So there's an aroma of death, crime scene, mortuary, the deathbed. As a minister, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, with people um, on their deathbed. And there, there's, there's actually a sort of a scent of somebody dying as well, it's, it's very, fairly common. Now, there are essentially two existential fragrances that Paul is talking about here. Two existential fragrances, and they are Christ and sin. And, and both of those uh, aromas, both of those fragrances waft. You understand what waft means? It means they permeate, they get into things, okay? Both are noticeable. And both of them have powers of influence. So the question is, which fragrance are we going to be? Are we going to be that fragrance of life, Jesus, or are we going to be that fragrance of death, which is sin? And, and of course, Paul, Paul argues that as a result of him being thoroughly led by God, his sincere proclamation and instruction and the joy that comes from his ministry, he is part of the aroma of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm, I'm part of the aroma of Christ, so is Titus. So is um, Silas, uh, so is uh, so Luke, so are all of my uh, compadres. But he says the aroma, the stench of sin can, can also get on us as well. And that, that aroma, that stench of sin can actually be attractive to other sinners, which is interesting. It's, it shouldn't be, but it is. Okay. Uh, but Paul says, uh, of course, bad company corrupts good morals. So that's kind of how that happens as well. So I know we often struggle with this, but are, are we putting off an aroma? Uh, we, by the way, we are putting off an aroma, a fragrance, an existential one, whether we realize it or not. The question is, which one is it? And, and, and we're doing it at home and in the marketplace and in the neighborhood and at school and at work. People watch, people notice, uh, and people will especially watch and notice if they know you're a Christian. There, there is a sense in which they're going to, here you go, uh, Tom Schrader used to say it this way, yeah, he, he's, he'd say, um, it's interesting how people who are not Christians will often hold Christians to a higher standard than the Christians will hold themselves to. <laughs> but that's just true about the world, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really difficult, you know. So, and, and they're watching, and you know, hey, you want to go to the lake on Sunday? I can't, I'm going... I'm going to church. Uh, hey, you want to grab uh, some lunch? I can't. I, I go to a Bible study at lunch, at lunchtime. What's that book you're reading? I'm reading the Bible. What are you eating? Torchy tacos. Oh, you must be a Christian. I threw that in there for Tyler Thompson. So. I don't think if you're eating torchy tacos, you're, you're a Christian. Now, if you're eating Zinn burgers, I, I, I would say you're probably a person of faith. But, uh, anyway. You get the idea. Those are our aroma encounters. And those who respond to the gospel positively have the fragrance of life. Those who respond to the gospel negatively will have the fragrance of death. And then verse 17, um, 
Paul and his team preach and teach Christ as sincere men. And therefore, they have the fragrance of life. And if you were here last week, we talked about that word sincere and how it means um, without flaw, without crack. It's, it's whole and complete. Uh, that's literally what it means. And it had to do with the uh, clay pots and vases in the, in the first century and how they would try to repair them with wax and then shine it up and make it so it, you know, if you didn't look real closely, you didn't realize that you were buying something that was actually flawed. Um, Paul is using that word sincere to say that when we proclaim the gospel, it is without flaw. And Paul's not saying that's because I'm so special, smart, or good at it. It's because God's word is that good. That's what Paul says. Um, So he's telling the Corinthians that his proclamation is without flaw. But that, of course, if you know the Corinthians leads to Paul beginning chapter 3 with a defense of himself of sorts. He doesn't want people to think his self-endorsement as a sincere preacher is going to be taken as bragging or unauthorized commendation. And so you look at uh, verse three, uh, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and you see him beginning to make that, that um, defense. He writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Uh, that's in, tablets of stone. What might Paul be referencing there? Ten Commandments. So you know that eventually he's going to get into the Ten Commandments and Moses and all that, which is going to be next, not next week, but in four weeks when we uh, finish chapter three. He is eventually going to get into that. But based on what Paul writes in chapter two, Paul anticipates that the false teachers and troublemakers in Corinth will point point out what he says in order to start to delegitimize Paul again. Look at Paul bragging about himself. Paul's Paul's ego is too big. Paul's arrogant. So Paul says, listen, we've been at this long enough that we don't need commendations or letters of recommendation to instruct you as a faith community. We have a track record. That track record's been proven by our ministry over and over we have others who constantly testify on our behalf. And then, and then Paul would say, even Peter would testify on our behalf for crying out loud. And if Peter's going to testify uh, about us, then that's a really good thing. That's a really good testimony. And Paul finally says, Paul finally says, in addition to all of that, you, you, the church at Corinth, that, that, that you as a church even exists and that there are saints there, that is an, authentic, that is an authentication of our ministry, and so you need to listen under our instruction. And verse 3 is a further illustration, looking back to Exodus 20 and the giving of the law, to say that the church at Corinth and Paul's ministry have been works of the Holy Spirit. And this then sets up his further defense in verses 4 through 6, where he explains that they do all their work and their ministry sufficiently empowered by God, not by themselves. By the way, uh, we can see over the course of these two letters that there's really quite a bit of tension, even animus, 
uh, between the church in Corinth at Paul. We talked a lot about that in, in 1 Corinthians 2. So the last three verses for tonight, verses 4 through 6, Paul writes, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but rather the Spirit gives life. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul moves from telling the Corinthians that they don't need letters for Paul and his team of ministers to now he says, here's the primary reason why you don't need these letters. And he, and he says, our sufficiency, our power, and our equipping come from God. It's not us. It's not that we went to the right seminary or the wrong seminary or any seminary at all. We're, we're equipped by God. And Paul's confidence to minister comes not from his own awesomeness, but the confidence he has in Christ. And Paul and all of us need that sufficiency to be ministers of the new covenant. We need the sufficiency of God. Paul, you know, later on in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, he's, there's going to be that famous passage where he says, I, prayed, I have a thorn in my flesh. I prayed three times for that thorn to be removed. By the way, there's lots of speculation about what the thorn is. It's a metaphor, but I'll tell you all about that eventually. Um, but he says that God didn't remove the thorn. And so then he says, but I know Christ's grace is sufficient. So that's what he's, he's saying. My sufficiency all comes from Jesus. So any of us that are involved in this new covenant, uh, the New Testament, uh, the grace of the gospel, we need that sufficiency. So the new covenant is no longer based on the observance of the law, but on responding to the Holy Spirit. It's no longer based on the observance of the law, but by responding to the Holy Spirit. Now, first question that if I were you, I would ask, does that mean that we no longer have a need for the law, for the Torah? And the answer is, no, that's not what that means. The law, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic books, give us a needed understanding of the wisdom, mind, and heart of God, which the Holy Spirit will direct us to. On Tuesday mornings, as we've been reading through, just reading through Scripture, we're in the Torah right now. Well, you know that, Ira. We're in, we're in the Torah, and it's amazing how, how uh, often you just see these New Testament themes played out uh, by, as you're reading the Torah. And, you know, the Torah is really intimidating. The first five books of the Bible really intimidating most people. I mean, maybe not Genesis so much, but once you get past the story of Moses being born and then exiled, it gets pretty rough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get into Leviticus and you learn all about skin diseases and numbers and you have to, you know, uh, pronounce names and stuff like that. But nevertheless, you see all these themes that are being played out, not only in the rest of the Old Testament, but also in the in the New Testament. We need the Torah. We need it because it reveals the mind and the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit will direct us to it, though. So it's not us pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and just doing it. It's the Holy Spirit that fills us and directs us uh, to these things. Furthermore, the new covenant is not rooted in law observant, but in, uh, observance, but embracing and responding to the grace of God through the final sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 22? 
when, when the lawyers and the scribes come to him and they, and they ask him a very common question that you would ask rabbis and teachers of the law in the first century. It's a common question that they would ask. What's the greatest commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment is love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, and the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then what does he say right after that? He says, on these two commandments, you will fulfill all the law and the prophets. You see what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying observance of the law doesn't come by observing the law. Observing the, the law comes from a relationship with God. That's what he's saying. So the work of the law has been fulfilled for us in Jesus. And, and that's what makes him the perfect and final sacrifice for us. And so by embracing him and his work on the cross, we become a part of the new covenant. A covenant by God that insists that the work of salvation is complete and our job now is just to follow. It's actually quite beautiful. The gospel is a beautiful thing. The problem with the Corinthians and with us is that we want to at least be a part of, if not all, of any good that we do or any salvation that we have. We've we got to have our part. Okay, so to, again, Tom Sherry used to say, you do have a part. You, you do bring something to your salvation. You bring all your sin. <laughs> That's what you bring. Okay? So grace is confounding. Unmerited favor, I do nothing for this. And it's further confounding to the Corinthians that Paul's ability to do all he does. It, it confounds the Corinthians that he's planting churches, he's surviving abuses and attacks, you know. Uh, he was left for dead at least once. Um, he's able to teach compellingly and with wisdom, and he's able to love his enemies. But Paul keeps saying, none of that comes from me. It comes from God. It comes from the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Paul now knows that, as I've already kind of tipped my hat to, the Corinthians might hear this and decide that there is no, now no value in the law. So the Corinthians are going to swing all the, other, all the way the other way. They're, they're going to go, oh, well, then there's no value in the law whatsoever. Is that what you're saying? So it's yaha time. That's licentiousness. We can do whatever we want. We can start sleeping with our stepmother again. That's good news. Okay. So Paul decides, I need to refute that line of thinking. So the rest of chapter 3 is referencing Exodus chapter 34 in order to make Paul's point. So in verses 7 through 11, which we'll pick up in four weeks... Uh, verses 7 through 11 reference Exodus 34, 29 through 32, which explain how when Moses came down from meeting the Lord on Mount Sinai, his face was shining brightly with the glory of God. And he had to wear a veil to cover his face because it was too bright for anybody to look at his face. So Paul's going to use that as an example to make the point he makes in verses 7 through 11. That's what we'll do Starting in four weeks, if you are not a member, whoops, if you are not a member of uh, Redemption Church and are interested in what that means or what that looks like, so come the next three weeks. And I think we're having food and childcare and all that other stuff for the membership class the next three weeks as well. Pretty sure we are. So let me pray and we'll see you Sunday. Uh, Sunday is. Uh, David coming back into Jerusalem as the king again. And again, it's not a smooth transition. There's all kinds of stuff that goes wrong. Human beings, man, they're the worst, I'll tell you. So uh, let me pray. God, Father, thank you for 
your word and its truth. And I just pray that uh, we would have the courage to uh, just accept your grace, your unmerited favor, and, and then respond to the Holy Spirit by welcoming him to fill us and to live our lives pursuing who you are, pursuing your will and your wisdom. Uh, help us to know you better. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.